want you to do this with me. Would you go ahead and stand to honor the reading of God's word? If you're able to stand, um, let's stand to honor his precious word. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, Disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's a universal impulse to want to please the ones in our life who are the most important to us. A child definitely wants to please their, their mother or father. Uh, my little girl Hadley, she loves to draw. She'll do it all day long and she'll bring a stack of pictures to us and explain them. And she will watch our faces as we look at her pictures because she wants to see us light up. She wants to know that she's uh, well approved. Uh, my son Silas the other day, uh, he said, Daddy, come outside and look. And he had built this little tiny miniature wa- waterfall. It was a garden and a waterfall for the insects in our backyard. So he created this little micro-Eden, this little new creation, um, and said, Daddy, look, and he watched me to see if I approved. A spouse wants to know that the other delights in them. An apprentice wants to know that the master is proud of them. The need to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, is written deep down in our souls. So it seems a key question, then, um, how does one please God? How does one please God? And to know that, one must know what it is that God wants. What is his will for our lives? So here's a crucial question. What is God's will for our lives? And we get the answer to this question wrong in a vast number of ways. And it seems that if we get this wrong, we get a lot of things wrong. And this is a rather big Big deal. So Paul, in the passage to the church in the city of Thessalonica here today that we're going to read, um, that we already read and going to dig into, um, he thinks it's quite important that we live in a way that pleases God. And that has, it has something to do with the way we walk. God's will has something to do with the way we walk, how we live our lives. So how does one please God? Well, so far in this letter to the church of Thessalonica, and that's what this book is, the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's a letter that Paul writes to a church in the city. So far, he has given thanks for the faith 
um, of this young fledgling church. He has recounted their relationships, how he, Silas, and Timothy limped into town, battered and bruised, beaten up in the city of Philippi for preaching the gospel. He's told us how he has shared not only the gospel with him, the good news of Jesus, but how he has shared his very life, opened up his life to these people. Well, then he was run out of town, and now he's separated from them, and he aches to be with them. He wants to know how they are doing, because he loves them. And so he sends his dear friend Timothy back to get a report, and Timothy comes back to Paul, and he says, Paul, it's going wonderfully. They're doing well. They're staying faithful to the gospel. The word of God is working within them. And so Paul rejoices in this, and then he goes on to encourage them, as we're going to see to encourage them, to prompt them, to exhort them, to keep trusting in Jesus, to follow him as his apprentices, which means that they are to abide with him and obey what he says. And so this brings us now to verse 1. Finally, then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Finally, this is the word that our translations say, finally, but this is not the end of the letter. Rather, it's better translated as furthermore, or as for the other matters that we need to address. He's saying, okay, we've already talked about some things, but there's other stuff that we need to deal with. So let's go ahead and do it. See, Timothy's come back with this positive, glowing report. They're doing great, <clears throat> but there seems to be a, minor, a minority of them that need some reminders about what Paul has taught them, about what Jesus has taught them. And he calls them Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. This is familial language. We talk about this a lot here. These people are his family. He loves them. They, they are cherished. They are precious. He has great affection for them. They are brothers and sisters, it says here, in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are united to Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Therefore, they are united to each other. We are the sons and daughters of God adopted by the work of Jesus, which means we are truly brothers and sisters, and we are called to treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, being apprentices of Jesus by his Spirit, they are to follow Jesus, right? To be with him and to obey the things that he says. And this way of life is quite different than the way of life around them. See, apprentices of Jesus, they, they inhabit this world in a very, very different way. There's a way that we ought to live. And there are a million different ways that we are ought not to live, right? And Paul and company have brought the good news of Jesus. Um, the, what's called the indicative, what has happened, what Jesus has done, the good news of what has been accomplished by what Jesus has done, but then they also bring the news um, of what they are to do. This is the imperative, how they are now to live in light of what Christ has done, right? Because he doesn't just change your life in a way where you now say you believe something, but you don't live in accordance with it. He changes our lives through and through, right? So we live completely differently. Now, um, <clears throat> I think at this point I should say that our world has an increasingly antagonistic, or at least an increasingly complex relationship with the idea of ought to, okay? In a secularized world, one in which there is no God above, 
No divine judge, no creator or designer who gives ultimate meaning or purpose to anything. It is incredibly difficult to reasonably, to rationally say that one ought to live a certain way. If we are merely the product of blind chance, only collided chemicals and matter, what sense does it make to say one ought to live this way, one ought not to live that way? By what authority? What's the transcendent authority that, that gives us any kind of ground for an ought to? Western culture at large has evicted God from the universe. And with him, any ought-tos and any moral imperatives about life have also been ejected when we try to be consistent. So, what does that mean? It means we have to make our own meaning. And we have to construct some morality. We have to write our own oughts. We have to customize our own ethics. It's left to us, the creators, the, the makers of our own lives and our own selves. And so what happens? What do we see? What do we do? Well... People do what's right in their own eyes, making it up as they go, doing what feels right based on their own subjective experiences, based on their own passions and their own desires, untethered from any objective meaning or ought to. But in contrast and in subversion to this chaotic free-for-all that we live in, the Christian faith says that there is truly a way to be human. Christian faith says there is a way to live where you, you truly become human as you were created to be. There is a way that we ought to walk, and we must be taught it. We need instruction from God. Sin has so distorted our faculties that we cannot often see it. We don't see it the way it should be. And so we need to hear his word on who we are on how he has created everything and what the good life actually is. So there is a way to live that pleases God. And there are ways to live that simply don't please him. <clears throat> there's right and there's wrong written into existence, and we can't make these rights and these wrongs up or change them based upon what we want. Our various desires do not trump God's design. Where do we hear these life-bringing instructions? How do we live in accordance with reality? Well, verse 2. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. The definitive, authoritative instruction on life is from Jesus. It is found in the Word of God. The Scriptures teach us about reality, how to live in accordance with the truth of things. Now, Paul says that the Thessalonians are doing well. They are trusting and obeying Jesus. They are doing well and pleasing God, living in accordance with, with reality. Yet, there is a report that some of them are still living in a way that does not lead to flourishing, a way that leads to, to damage and, and destruction and hurt, a way that doesn't lead to them looking more and more like Jesus. And we get some clarity now here in verse 3 as Paul continues his, his flow of thought and logic. So verse 3, we get clarity on what it means to please God. What does God want for our lives? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Have you ever asked that question, Lord, what is your will 
for my life? Maybe you've asked a friend, what, what is God's will for my life? We can drive ourselves crazy with this question, wanting God to give us detailed, turn-by-turn directions, like, like he's a divine GPS that, that we can just plug in where we want to go and then like how we're supposed to get there. But God gives us, right here, very clear teaching on what his will is for our life. It's to be sanctified. And, and that's a big word that means to be made holy. And the word made holy means to be set apart. Right? To be set apart from those things that are damaging and destructive. To be set apart from the darkness and live in the light. To be set apart. So sanctification is a process of becoming holy. Now, what does this mean? Well, in short, it means that we are to become more and more like Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be holy. So here's what sanctification is. Sanctification is a spirit-empowered process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Sanctification is a spirit-empowered process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And we become more and more loving as we become more and more like him, more and more gracious, more and more truthful, and we live in accordance with reality more and more as we become more and more like Jesus. And one of the first things that this means is that we're a people in process. We're not finished yet. We're not finished. We are on the road home. We're growing. We're changing. We are learning. Not one of us has yet arrived. No one is now as they yet will be someday. We have miles to go. All of us do. And so let this take the, the harsh wind of being judgmental out of our sails, right? When we see others struggling, we too can be gracious. We can speak truth, but we can be gracious because we know that we too are struggling in some other area because we are still in process and he is cleansing us and changing us. Next, it means that our goal, the aim of our lives, is this, to become like Jesus. God wants us to become like Christ. As apprentices, we are united to Jesus, and the end game is to be transformed into his image and to reflect his glory. That is where we are going. So back to this big question then, what pleases God? It is us becoming more and more like his son in whom he is well pleased. How does that happen? How does sanctification happen? How do we become more like Jesus? Well, we abide with him. That means we, we be with him. We spend time with him through his word and prayer. We do what he says. We listen to his instructions. And then that all happens by his indwelling spirit. So as you know, we've been talking about apprenticeship here often. And we have a specific and helpful definition for apprenticeship. And it's simply this. Apprenticeship is embodied, loving trust in Jesus empowered by his spirit, transforming us into his image. We are to give our life and trust to him, all of who we are, to listen to what he says, to follow him. How? It's empowered by his spirit. And the end game is that we end up being transformed into his image. So embodied loving trust, that means obedience, doing what he says. He knows what we are meant to be. He has designed us. Now, with that groundwork laid, all that said, we can talk about sexuality, as Paul goes on to do. 
And here's where I pray, Lord, would you help us to hear your word? Lord, we have all these thoughts and opinions and desires and wants and aches and longings, but help us to submit ourselves to your word. See, Paul makes it incredibly clear, incredibly clear. Our sexuality has everything to do with our sanctification. What we do with our bodies matters. Our sexuality is interwoven with our spirituality. Our sexuality is sacred. We are holistic beings. He made us and he said it is very good. Mind, body, soul. So question, why? Why does Paul bring up sexual immorality here? Well, he brings it up because he knows that we are called to holy sexuality. Our sexuality must serve our sanctification, who we are in Christ. We are not to get this backwards. We're not to get this backwards and have our identity and our faith serve our sexuality as though our sexuality is the source of our identity. Our sexuality is not a God, but a servant of God. And we flip this all the time and we shove sexuality into the very core and we identify ourselves as this or that. And we end up serving our sexuality rather than our sexuality becoming one of the many ways that we submit to God and trust and serve Him. At cost to ourselves for His glory and the good of other people. To grow in our likeness to Christ, we are to abstain from sexual immorality. That's what he goes on to say here. And the word he uses here is the word porneia. So we need to talk about this here for a few moments. This is the word um, that is the root word for pornography. But it's not just limited to pornography. So here's what this word porneia means in the Greek. Any sexual activity, any sexual activity outside of the bounds of God-authored and God-designed marriage. And I know what we are now preaching is incredibly countercultural and unwanted by most of the world. But we do not preach and proclaim popular opinion. It moves and blows with the trend winds of this world. We are to preach and proclaim the truth of who he is and what he's done and what we are designed for. And it will always challenge who we are in some way, shape, or form. Because remember, or a people in process, right? See, Christians are weird, right? We hold to a sex ethic that comes from Jesus and his teachings. Verse 2 says, For you know what instructions we gave you through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christians are those who are called to control our bodies, our desires, our longings, our cravings, our deep internal aches. We are more than our desires. We are more than our lusts and wants. They are not to define us, but we are to discipline them. And what this means is that we are to bring them into alignment with the truth of who we are as God's people. And to discipline them means that we are to say no to them quite often. So can we agree on this point? Can we agree on this point that sometimes what you desire is not the right thing? Have you ever desired something that was not the right thing? Anyone? Yeah. Right? 
all the time. And we have to learn to say no to those things that are destructive and don't lead to flourishing. Just because we have powerful, powerful urges or propensities does not mean that they are to be followed, right? But our culture is cultivated in us for centuries in incredibly potent ways, overdriven ways in the last decades. Our culture has cultivated in us the idea that the, that, um, the truest and most authentic thing is, is to follow your own desires and do what you want. Follow all your desires. Do what you want. You're a king. Don't be inauthentic. If you feel it, it's right. It's good. Act on it. But this is incredibly unloving counsel. It's incredibly unloving. If I were to tell my kids, do whatever you want, whatever feels good, like my house would be the Lord of the Flies, right? They would be hurting each other. I would have to step in really quickly because they're going to do incredibly dumb things. And they're going to damage their bodies. They're going to damage their relationships. They're not going to know who they are or what they're designed for. And you know, um, what Paul goes on to say here is he says, it's those who don't know God, those who don't trust relationship. Uh, those who don't have a trusting relationship with God that do whatever they want with their bodies. It's they that do not control their sexuality, but who are controlled by it that don't know him. Therefore, they're not free. And that's the great irony is, is as people want to be free to do whatever they want, they actually are now bound and enslaved and reject the only source of freedom, which is their creator. And you know... It damages other people, right? Unchecked desires, unrestrained sexuality dishonors God and it dishonors our brothers and sisters. See, sexuality is important. It's a gift from God. It's not something to be ashamed of and and hidden. We don't preach this because we're somehow prudish and, and think it's something that's awful. Sexuality is important. It's a gift from God. It's designed to honor God and designed to honor each other. But when you untether sexuality from its sacredness, from its proper place and order designed by God, we weaponize it. We actually weaponize our sexuality rather than letting it be the God-honoring wonder that it is. And there are consequences to our uncontrolled sexuality. There are victims of misused sexuality. Distorting God's design leads to abuse and the selfish use of others. Our sex life has consequences. This is what Paul says here. He says, God will avenge. God will bring justice to those who have been wronged sexually to the abused, to the taken advantage of, to those who have had things stolen from them. God will make things right. Paul doesn't mince words. Paul loves, so he speaks the truth, and he warns them, take this seriously. You're not just damaging your own soul, you're drawing other people into your orbit of sin and brokenness. And there will be consequences. At this point, I should say, um, we all 
have sexual sin somewhere in our lives, in our past. All. Why do I say that? As fallen human beings, all of our faculties, all of our being in some way, shape, or form has been touched by sin, and that includes our sexuality. So I know the temptation, because I faced it this week as I was preparing this. Don't otherize this. It's not just out there with somebody who struggles with their sexual orientation or their gender identity. Don't otherize this. Personalize this. Hear what Paul is saying as though it's coming directly to you. Every one of us, regardless of whatever you claim your sexual orientation is or your your gender identity is, every one of us is called to a holy sexuality. And let me clarify what I mean by that. A sexuality that is submitted to Jesus. A sexuality that, through control, restraint, and properly directed use, honors God and honors other people as they are created to be. A sexuality that conforms to Jesus' teachings. And what is this? This is sexual activity, or this is sexual engagement um, that is a sacred gift only to be expressed in the covenantal union of a man and a woman that is marriage. I need to say that again. Sexual activity is a sacred gift to only be expressed within the covenantal union of a man and woman. That is marriage as we see defined in Scripture. Marriage is the creation of God. It's not a cultural construct. God created it. This is the sexual ethic given by Jesus and reinforced by Paul in all the scripture. That's why he uses the word porneia here. Porneia, it's it's this kind of junk drawer term. It means sexual sin. Any sexual engagement outside of marriage, also including unfaithfulness within the, the, the covenant of marriage itself. And it's often the case that our spiritual growth is stunted, installed, or distorted because we... Um, let our sexuality roam free. It is uncontrolled, and therefore it's actually controlling us. And so our sexuality has everything to do with becoming like Jesus. Don't buy into the thought that, you know, what you do with your body has nothing to do with your profession of faith. What we do with our body matters, and sexuality is sacred. Now, let me say this. A, A holy sexuality doesn't mean you have a perfect track record. Okay? It doesn't mean you have a perfect track record. Sin has touched all of our sexuality. Radical corruption. Sin has creeped into all of our lives. None of us are perfect. We all need grace. We all need forgiveness, don't we? We all need grace. We all need forgiveness. All of us. So Paul, don't misread this. Paul isn't congratulating the Thessalonians on a perfect sexuality track record. It's quite the opposite. Check this out. He knows their broken past. And for those of you who are, are, are deeply wrestling with sexual sin right now, and, and you know it, I pray you, you take encouragement from what you're about to hear. Because this is incredible. This is the good news. He knew all of the Thessalonians came out of a culture that said casual and cultic sex was not only fine, but it was the normal and and the good thing to do. 
Right? This is a culture that lived by this mantra. This is a quote um, by uh, someone named De- Demosthenes. And Demosthenes was a famous Greek uh, statement and, and orator. And here's what he said. Listen to this. Catch this. He says, mistresses, we keep them for the sake of pleasure. Concubines, for the daily care of our persons, for their daily pleasures. But wives, to bear us legitimate children. Now, how's that for a statement of the, the, the state of culture? And the city of Thessalonica had a number of religions where, where sex with cultic prostitutes was the expected behavior. Sex with priestesses would bring about fertility and blessing in your life. Your business would boom. Your, your fields would bloom. It's kind of how it all worked. This was a cultural milieu that they lived in. So Paul is telling them, you once lived in darkness. Now you are children of the light. You are creatures of the word made alive by Jesus. You're part of a completely different kingdom. One in which sexuality is truly sacred. Belonging within the beautiful bounds of God's design. It is for your spouse. No one else. This is God's design. This is at the start of the story in Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation. So in Christ we have been cleansed from our sins. We have been cleansed from our misused sexuality. Whether we have perpetrated it upon others, whether we have been the victim. We are new creations and we are now to live in the light of Jesus. We are loved, accepted, and adored. He washes us clean no matter what we've done or where we've been, no matter what we struggle with. The Thessalonians are to look different than the world around them, and they're going to look weird. We're going to look weird. We're going to look backwards, right? Strange, bigoted, narrow-minded, intolerant, fussy, prudish. Look at this flip. Whereas popular culture, their popular culture, was inclusive and generous with their sexuality, giving it to everyone, they were often exclusive or stingy with their money and resources, which could bless people. But the Christians flipped it. The Christians were exclusive and stingy with their sexuality, giving it to the one they were in covenant partnership with, and they were inclusive and generous with their funds and resources to bless the world. It's the opposite. See, God's will for their lives and our lives is that we would become more and more like Jesus. And a key aspect to this is having a holy sexuality. So just to press in, let me define it this way. We are called to holy sexuality. What in the world is that? It's trusting God through chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. It's trusting God with chastity and singleness and faithfulness marriage. Okay. That is a tall order. Restraining the powerful desires and urges that are in the most cavernous parts of our being. 
How are we to do this? How are we to grow in holiness in this area of sexuality that is so passionately felt, that is such a powerful force in our lives, especially when we're surrounded by a culture that is sexualized, that we are talking with kids who want to play with sticks and rocks in the backyard about gender identities and their sexuality when they don't even have the categories to process this, but this is being pushed on them from the earliest of ages. From every source of media, it's almost inescapable, the pressure, the normalization of all of these things and what we watch and what we hear. How do we do this? It sounds impossible. Well, the answer is here in verses 7 and 8. Is what Paul says. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives the Spirit to you. And there it is. See, first, we know that our calling is to become like Jesus. We are to follow after him. Second, we are to live in accordance with the word of God for the instructions in Scripture. They're not merely of men. They are not opinions. They are not something that was culturally created 2,000 years ago, and suddenly we've evolved, and now we're smarter and understand sexuality, but Jesus didn't. These are the teachings of Christ. Divine oughts that meet our broken is's to make us more like Jesus. There are an overwhelming number of voices on how we should live out our sexuality, but there is one voice that we need to listen to. It's Jesus. Third, let me say this. This is the last bit of the verse. We can follow after Jesus because we are empowered. We are empowered to obey his instructions because he has given us his spirit. This is the glowing good news of the gospel. It's not all on you to just grab your bootstraps and pull yourself up and wash yourself off and do this on your own strength. You don't have it. I don't have it. We need a hero. We need someone who can save us. Now, today is a perfect day for this, actually, to talk about how we are empowered to do this. Do you know what today is? It's Pentecost. It's Pentecost Sunday, right? It's Pentecost Sunday. So what is Pentecost Sunday? Well, Pentecost Sunday is the day in the church calendar that, that, that coincides with the Jewish holiday feast called Shavat. That's a word that means weeks, the, the festival of the weeks. So this is really important. Let's break this down real quick. So um, th- this festival that's happening today that, that churches all over the world are celebrating, Pentecost or, or Shavat, uh, <laughs> took place seven weeks after Passover. Okay, seven weeks after Passover, seven weeks after the liberation of slavery, from slavery in Egypt, God took his people out of slavery, right? Through the mighty acts, through, um, under the banner of the blood of the slain lambs that was, that was painted on the door frames, right? Remember that? Lambs were slain, blood was painted. Then they go through, right, the split sea. God then crushed the enemy. Pharaoh's army that came to kill his people, they were in the waters and it all came back. God's people were out. The enemy was crushed. Seven weeks after that, seven weeks after the blood and the water, God brings his people to Mount Sinai, the fiery storm mountain where he gave them his 
law. Why? He was teaching them how to be his people. He wasn't saying, here's how to get saved. He was saying, you are saved. I brought you out of slavery. Now live this way. Love me and love others. So he taught them there. He liberated his people and he was showing them how to live. But of course, the story rolls on and they fail time and time again, entering into idolatry and injustice and adultery. That's not where the story ends. This is so incredible. Fast forward to Jesus. Jesus is the long-awaited hero, the anointed one, the redeemer, the greater and surer prophet that Moses spoke of. And he dies on his cross, on Passover. He is the slaughtered lamb, the only slaughtered lamb that can actually take away sins. His blood smeared on the horizontal and vertical beams of the cross, like the horizontal and vertical beams of those thresholds of the houses of slavery that they lived in in Egypt. He goes into the chaos waters of death, and he comes out the other side, (coughs) bringing those who trust him through death and into life. And this just gets better. Look at this. Seven weeks later, during the festival of Shabbat, up on Mount Zion, at the very time the Jews are remembering God giving them the law on tablets of stone at Sinai to show his newly redeemed people how to live as his children through wind and fire and all that going on, at the very same time, God pours out his spirit on the 120 in the upper room, birthing the church as tongues of flame and as wind blows. He puts his spirit inside of his people, writing his laws on their heart, changing them that they might actually live out what he has commanded them to. He will dwell with his people and and he will be their God. Look at that parallel. It's as if God has designed all of history to point to Christ and his glory. My friends, as believers, the spirit of the risen Jesus Christ lives with inside you. He can carry you through whatever wrestling with your sexuality you are dealing with. It doesn't mean it'll be easy. It doesn't mean it won't cost you. He has given you the resources. He is the Lord of all creation. He is the Lord over your sexuality. It is by His faithful Spirit that we are cleansed from whatever we have done, whatever has happened in our past. We are accepted. We are forgiven. We are loved. We are new creations. And it is by His Spirit that we are now empowered to live with chastity and singleness and with faithfulness and marriage live with the holy sexuality to God's glory and honor and for the good and honor of our brothers and sisters. So, taste and see that he is good. Love him with all you are, all you do. What you do with your body matters. Our sexuality is sacred. It's a gift. Let us live lives of embodied trust and come to know, know his holy pleasure pleasure of obedience to a loving and a faithful God. Father, would you do something with these many words? Would you do in our hearts only 
what you can do? Would you um, bring clarity to our minds? And Father, would your grace and mercy be felt and experienced by all of us here in this room today, all of us who are watching online, who struggle with, with so many different things in so many different ways? But I ask for the grace to live knowing that our identity is found in you because of union with you. Let our, our union with you drive everything else. Father, by your grace, give us a holy sexuality. We love you. Jesus, thank you for saving us. We need you. And I pray for those who are in here or maybe watching online. Um, and they, they didn't know you this morning as Lord and Savior, but you've done something wonderful in their hearts or you're doing something right now. Father, would this time of coming to the table be a moment where they profess as you, you as Lord and Savior. May that be so. We thank you now that we can worship through confession and communion. Amen.